Well, hello, Spark. Uh, so nice to see all of you, and so nice to see some uh, old friends. Great to have you here today. Uh, if you are new today, if this is your first time, you may have noticed that there was a prayer that was happening, and part of it's in Hebrew, and part of it is in English, and you didn't see that. So if you leave here today, and you ever you want to think about what your first experience was at Spark, is that we pray in Hebrew. Did, did you see it? We, did, we didn't have the words, and we did it. It goes in your mind. Uh, my name is Tom. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, our senior pastor, Danielle, is gone with Junior and Kevin. They're off to Samoa, I uh, think, having a good time. Junior is putting out a lot of little Facebook, little live things. So uh, I think we're keeping in contact with them, and I enjoy that. The U.S. Supreme Court came out with a decision last month, and you probably saw it, that struck down affirmative action in higher education, literally overturning decades of precedents that upheld race-conscious admission policies and ignored the reality of modern America where prejudice and racism endure. In fact, Judge Kentanji Brown-Jackson wrote in her dissent that, and I quote, golf-sized, Gulf-sized race-based gaps still exist that were created in the past but have indisputably been passed down to the present day through the generations. And Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote in her dissent that this decision cements a superficial rule of colorblindness. Colorblindness. What does that mean? Colorblindness is a term that refers to an approach that claims not to see or acknowledge differences in skin color or race. It suggests that individuals should treat everyone equally and to not to take race into consideration when making judgments or decisions, where in theory it is then possible to create a more egalitarian society and a fairer society free from bias and racial discrimination. Now I know people have different opinions on this Supreme Court decision. They do. And while it is true that some Asian students applying to Harvard, deserving students with strong academic records, were turned down by Harvard, that is true. Still, I find this ruling by the Supreme Court calculated and disappointing because you just can't put your head in the sand and hope that racism will go away. You see, colorblindness, it just fails to address systemic racism and overlooks the experiences and realities faced by marginalized and ethnic groups. And by ignoring race, colorblindness can inadvertently perpetuate existing inequalities as it does not acknowledge or confront the structural and institutional factors that contribute to discrimination and unequal treatment. And if the Supreme Court really wanted our higher education institutions to be more egalitarian, fairer, and free from bias, maybe they should have taken on a case dealing with the glaring issue of how 43% of white students at Harvard are legacy athletes and children of donors. But that's not what was on the court's docket, and that's a shame, because focusing on these applicants would have had the best chance of creating a more egalitarian society and a fairer society free from bias and racial discrimination. Today I want to talk about Jesus in the Bible and the problem of slavery and racism 
I grew up in a church that was all white, although we never talked about the fact that we were all white. We would sing songs that said things like, how precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. And yet I never thought about how singing those words might feel in the unlikely event that someone came into our church who was not white. If I cut myself, I would go to the drugstore and get band-aids that were called flesh-colored. And I never thought about how it might feel if my flesh was a different color than flesh-colored. I never thought about how in the book of Revelation, when it pictures heaven, it pictures it like this, with every tribe, nation, people, and language standing before the throne. And when you go to Walgreens in heaven and ask for flesh-colored Band-Aids, what color do they give you? The church I grew up in was a Baptist church, and although Dr. Martin Luther King was a Baptist pastor, I don't remember his message or even his name ever being mentioned at our church. One of the most helpful and significant small groups for me occurred here at Spark. It was a book club where we focused on racism, and many people here in the room were part of that club, and we owe a lot of gratitude to Okai. And I felt like before the group started that I knew a lot. But that first night I realized I knew nothing. I didn't know the experience of my black friends, that they were called horrible names, sometimes confused as the gardener instead of the renter or homeowner, regularly followed by security officers in stores, pulled over at night, especially in white neighborhoods, by police just because. And some actually had guns pulled on them because their flesh was not flesh-colored. I realized most days I never thought about the color of my skin. Yet there was never a day that went by that they didn't think about the color of their skin. Never a day. I say this because today we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, and the topic of slavery comes up. Peter writes, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. And it looks like on a superficial level that Peter is just completely fine with slavery, and that bothers me, and it may bother you too. So we're going to dive deep into the issue of racism and racial injustice today. And this subject is absolutely core to the gospel. It is filled with pain. It is critical to our identity as a church and our future as the body of Jesus. And it's something where I think maybe a considerable number of us have something to learn. I know I do. In 1969, a civil rights activist named James Foreman wrote a manifesto, and he nailed it to the door of a church. It called for the restructuring of society, for amends to be made, and for reparations to be paid because of the damage of centuries of racism and slavery. A Christian scholar named Duquan notes that maybe the most extraordinary part of the manifesto is that it, it was not addressed to the United States government, it was actually addressed to the church of Jesus Christ. It was about 400 years ago that the first African slaves were kidnapped from Africa and deposited on the shores of Jamestown about the same time the pilgrims were landing at Plymouth Rock. Over and over and over, the white church of Jesus aided and abetted the enslavement of Africans. 
1730, an Anglican bishop issued an edict to clarify that just because a slave got baptized and came to know Jesus, that did not mean they were to be set free from slavery. By 1750, about 20% of the population of U.S. colonies uh, was African American. It's about 14% today. Maybe the most famous Puritan preacher, Cotton Mather, taught that becoming Christians would make slaves better slaves, and that it was sinful pride for an African slave to want to be set free. George Whitfield, maybe the most prominent teacher in the U.S. revival known as the Great Awakening in the 1700s, taught that slavery was God-ordained. God-ordained. And bondage would lead to the salvation of heathen Africans. From 1846 till the Civil War, every Southern Methodist Episcopal bishop was a slave owner. And if you wonder why were there Southern Methodists like Southern Methodist University, it was over the issue of slavery. Even in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the two most prominent white evangelists D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday proclaimed the gospel to, to audiences that were segregated so that nobody who was African-American was allowed to sit with the white people to hear the good news that Jesus had died for every human being. The white church, in Duquan's words, signed the moral permission slip to subjugate, enslave, and humiliate the millions of humans being kidnapped from Africa and their descendants with Jim Crow laws and lynchings. So this is really an important subject. And with, time, with the time we have left, I want to look at three important questions. What does the Bible say about slavery? What does the Bible say about racism? And what does that mean for you and for us? So let's start. What does the Bible say about slavery? One of the ironies of the Civil War and battles in the church before the Civil War is that both people on the pro-slavery side and people on the anti-slavery side claim justification from, for their position from the Bible. You might know about this. Preachers on the pro-slavery side would cite 1 Peter 2.18, a verse where Peter says, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. But Peter wasn't alone. The Apostle Paul, he gave quite similar commands to the church at Colossae and the church at Ephesus. So, so pro-slavery preachers would point to these verses and say, see, it's right there in the Bible. Slaves, obey your masters. So clearly the Bible is pro-slavery. However, as you might know, the, the great moral force behind abolition, the fight to end slavery, slavery, was overwhelmingly Christian. Think of William Wilberforce in England, and John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement, and Frederick Douglass, who escaped slavery in Maryland and was a highly gifted speaker. This conflict over slavery was so striking, Abraham Lincoln, in what is, I think, the greatest talk, or certainly the greatest theological analysis of any United States president ever, in his second inaugural address, noted, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his, bit, his aid against the other. 
And all of this can sometimes lead people to think that you can twist the Bible and say anything you want to make it say. And because of that, any claim that anybody is really being morally guided by the Bible is just suspect and to be regarded with skepticism. But I don't think that's true. This is important. There's a very helpful framework of looking at the Bible and social systems, especially on broader issues of justice. It was offered by a New Testament scholar named William Webb. It's really important to understand the nature of the Bible. The Bible is not this abstract, heavenly blueprint for universal utopia. The Bible was written by real people in a real cultural context who were facing real problems and quite often commanded the audience to make limited but doable changes that point in the direction of God's ultimate love and justice for human flourishing. You see, in the ancient world, systems like patriarchy, slavery, polygamy, and monarchy were pretty much universal. For example, when the Bible was written, all of the cultures the biblical writers engaged with involved slavery. Canaanite, Egyptian, Ethiopian, Assyrian, Babylonian, and Greek. In ancient Rome, something between one-third and one-half of all the inhabitants of the city of Rome are thought now by historians to have been slaves. Get this, an economic system without slavery, slavery simply did not exist in those cultures. It wasn't feasible, and it wasn't possible, but it turns out when you look closely at the biblical text, the biblical commands in the Old Testament consistently under, undermined the power of slave owners in the ancient world. It undermined the system of slavery. For example, in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was no provision for slaves to be released. But in the Bible, in Leviticus, the Israelites were told to release their slaves after seven years of service. In the ancient Near East, there was no provisions to be given to a slave if they did get liberated. But in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 15, the Israelites were told to give generously to their slaves when they freed them. In the ancient Near East, as well as in Greece and in Rome, slave owners could punish any slave any time, for any reason, any way they wanted to. But Exodus put restrictions on how a slave could or could not be punished and held the masters accountable. In the ancient world, slaves would be given little time off for holidays. However, for example, in Deuteronomy 16 or Deuteronomy 31, slaves in Israel were given comparably, remarkably generous time off and they were to be given every Sabbath day off too, which was unprecedented. In the ancient world, runaway slaves or fugitive slaves carried a bounty, and nations would make treaties with other nations to ensure that all slaves would get returned. In fact, the Code of Hammurabi, written in Babylon in 1750 BC, imposed the death sentence on anybody who helped a runaway slave in the ancient world. By contrast, Deuteronomy 23 said Israel was to provide a sanctuary, a safe place for any runaway slave. Do you see the difference? This is a radical departure. And Webb says you have to add to this a remarkable number of what we might 
be called what might be called seedbed texts because the seeds are in them, in these verses that are very contrary to the spirit of the system of slavery. In essence, they carry kind of the seeds of liberation and of freedom. For example, only Israel's Bible taught that every single human being, slave or free, is made in the image of God and carries that kind of worth. Only Israel's Bible taught that every human being was called to exercise dominion and to create value and stewardship here on the earth. And the prophetic requirement for humanity is to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God, and that every human being is the object of God's love. And then you get to the Apostle Paul, who writes to Philemon about the release of his slave Onesimus, and then writes to the church at Galatia, where Paul says in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, when when people in the ancient world looked at the Bible, they were quite struck by this. When they would see the commands in the Bible from the perspective of the ancient world, they looked very subversive to slavery. They looked very progressive to that world. When we look back 2,000 years later at these passages, they look odd, right? But that's largely because we live in a society where the teachings of the Bible eventually undermined slavery and promoted human equality and eventually led largely through the work and the thought of Christ reformers to a society and to a social expression that is more compatible with God's will for human flourishing where slavery is no longer legally allowed to exist. I'll tell you one other indicator of how anti-slavery the Bible is when it is taken as a whole. In Washington, D.C., some of you may know there's the Museum of the Bible, and it currently has on exhibit something called the Slave Bible. It was published in the UK in 1807 in order to convert Africans to Christianity and make them good slaves. Get this, they created the slave Bible, but the publishers removed those parts of the Bible that might prompt slaves to desire their freedom. So they took out the entire book of Exodus. Does anyone know a little bit about Exodus? It's about captives being liberated from their oppressors. And the publishers said, we can't let slaves read that or they'll think God might do that for them. So we'll take that out of the slave Bible. They took out the entire book of Revelation because that talks about the ultimate triumph of God's justice for all of humanity at the end where he's going to wipe away every tear. That would be bad. So they took that out. They took out every mention of liberty or freedom in the Bible. Paul has a letter to the church in Corinthian. One of his arguments for radical unity was uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where it says, For we were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. They took that verse out too, because that would be a problem. In fact, there are 1,189 chapters in the Protestant Bible. There are only 232 chapters in the slave Bible. To make the Bible safe for slaves, they took out about 80% of the chapters. 
The reality is organizations like International Justice Mission, they talk about this, there are more people in slavery today than there have ever been, although it is illegal in most places. And there is injustice in many places, and it particularly affects the poor and persons of color. So friends, we have a lot of work to do. But hear this. The Bible, in fact, taken as a whole, can be seen to be tremendously subversive of slavery. So that leads us to the next question. What does the Bible say about race and racism and racial injustice? Christian historian Mark Knoll has written a book called The Civil War is a Theological Crisis. He writes about how the theological crisis in the Civil War actually involved two issues and not one. One was slavery, but the other was racism. However, even in those sections of the country that were anti-slavery, very few white people were wrestling with what the Bible said about racism. In the ancient world, people got enslaved generally for a few reasons, often because of debt. Sometimes they got enslaved when their side lost a war and all of their people would become slaves. Sometimes slavery was a form of punishment because they didn't have prisons back then. However, in the ancient world, by and large, people were not enslaved because of their race. The kind of slavery that was around in biblical times, in other words, was not a race-based slavery. For instance, Rome had a lot of slaves. Many of them were from what eventually became Germany and France. And so you had a lot of slaves who were whiter than their masters were. So if people in the white American South had really wanted biblical slavery, that would have meant slavery like the Bible, and that would have been slavery that was not based on race. That would have meant slavery where most of the slaves would turn out to be white people. It turned out that white people didn't really want biblical slavery at all. Almost all white Americans, Noel talks about this in his book, North as well as South, believed in the, in the inferiority of African Americans. Even the vast majority of those white Americans who were against slavery were not in favor of full racial equality and dignity and integration. So the greatest failure of the church in those days was not just its failure to preach against slavery, it was the failure of the church to preach against racism. If the church of Jesus had just stood up, united against the evil of racism, slavery would have collapsed in a day. But the church of Jesus did not do that. So it took the bloodiest war in U.S. history to stop slavery. And part of the tragic, evil consequence was that racism went marching on. In the ancient world... It was very often thought that certain people are just designed by nature to be slaves. In Greece, the famous philosopher Aristotle, celebrated in lots of ways, believed that some people are designed to be slaves. He put it like this. This is Aristotle. For that some should rule and others be ruled, in other words, be enslaved, is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. Then he extends this to gender. A proper wife should be as obedient as a slave. The female is a female, female by virtue of a certain lack of qualities and natural defectiveness. That's Aristotle. 
We don't know much about what Mrs. Aristotle thought about that, but probably not a whole lot. But this was common thought in the ancient world. The Bible teaches a radically different view of humanity where everybody shares the image of God and all people are made to be one. I'll give you just two verses to show you why the Bible as a text was so subversive. Just two verses that show how revolutionary these eyes were in human life and both from the book of Acts. Let's look at Acts chapter 17 where it is written, and God hath made one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. This was actually called in the early 19th century the doctrine of one bloodism. In other words, the idea is God only created one race, and that, human, that is the human race, and we all share a common origin. And this idea that everybody can be traced back to Adam had a profound implications. It would mean every human being had a common dignity, had a common worth, and has a common value. It would mean racism is not just wrong, it is not just sinful, it is blasphemy. It is to demean the image of God in another human being. This doctrine of one bloodism was so revolutionary, revolutionary that there would be very odd thoughts, sometimes preached by preachers who were pro-slavery. One whole line of thought came up that taught a theology of pre-atomism. Some preachers actually taught in churches the idea that there must have been other quasi-human races God made before Adam. And the inferior races of our day come from some pre-Adam figures in the Bible. It's called pre-Adam. Look it up, pre-Adamism. You've probably heard the story of Noah and the ark. What you may not know is in Genesis chapter 9, there's a passage where Noah pronounces prophetic judgment against his son Ham. After over 1,500 years, this began to be taught by certain white preachers inaccurately and incorrectly and falsely as a text that teaches the inferiority of certain races in our day. You see, one bloodism changed things a lot. Here's another staggering verse. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That might not look really stunning at first, but I'll tell you why it is. Antioch was one of the three great cosmopolitan cities in the ancient world. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, and there was Antioch. Initially, after the resurrection, the followers of Jesus were all Jewish. They were all part of Israel, and they shared this new gospel of Jesus with other Jewish people. Antioch was the first place where they started telling the Gentiles because Jesus told them, go tell everybody now. Then in Antioch, the Gentiles started believing. The book of Acts tells the story where Jews and Gentiles started loving each other and helping each other and eating together and serving with each other and learning with each other and giving generously to each other and becoming friends with each other. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Do you understand? Up until now, basically every religion on earth had been a tribal religion. It was part of a tribe or a state. It's part of what held it all together. Even the Jesus movement initially was understood to be kind of a Jewish sect within Israel, which again was primarily an ethnic deal. 
But now the Jewish community in Antioch is getting racially diverse and it's weird and it's unprecedented and they don't know what to call it. In fact, we're told, and this is quite an amazing verse here in Acts 13.1, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Why do they give us these names and these phrases? Barnabas was from Cyprus, which was in the Mediterranean. Simeon was from uh, Niger, which is in the sub-Saharan Africa. Lucius was from Cyrene, which was near the coast of Africa. Manon was the rich kid who was raised with the son of King Herod in the Middle East. And Saul was from, the, from Tarsus in Asia Minor. In other words, here is the Antioch leadership team. A Mediterranean guy, two Africans, a rich Middle Easterner, and a guy from Asia Minor. And we think we invented diversity. What in the world are these guys doing in the same room, let alone loving and caring for and submitting to and serving one another and leading a whole new community. People in Antioch saw this going on and realized this Jesus movement was not just a Jesus sect. This isn't anything anybody had ever seen. And they had to come up with a name for these people who would promiscuously include anybody. So they called them Christians. Christians who would be united as one and who would be united in love and who would break down all barriers. And now in Antioch, it happens. In other words, Christian as a word is only used a couple times in the New Testament. What gave rise to the word Christian is not a community that would exclude people based on their carefully monitored beliefs. It was a community that would include anybody based on their unprecedented love. This was the first community in human history where prejudices and stereotyping and racial hostility and in-group privilege were just demolished in the name and power and presence and love of Jesus that came sweeping over them. That was Antioch and those were, question, uh, were Christians. The last topic I want to cover is what does that mean for us? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for the church, for our church? Well, it means we get to be Christians here in the Bay Area, just like they got to in Antioch. It means we have an unprecedented opportunity to ask God to help us build a church as diverse as the kingdom of God itself, which would be an inspiration to our sadly divided nation and bring joy to the heart of Jesus. Jesus said we are to go into all the world, yet for us, God has brought the world into the Bay Area, and we see it. The single largest ethnic population in San Francisco is Chinese. Daly City has a larger percentage of Asian population than any U.S. city outside of Hawaii. More than 23% of the Bay Area residents are Latino or Hispanic from Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Puerto Rico, Nicaragua, Peru, and more. We have perhaps the largest community of Filipino residents outside of the Philippines. We have vibrant African-American communities in places like Oakland and Vallejo, and interestingly enough, one called Antioch. The Indian population has been exploding. San Jose has the largest Vietnamese population of any city outside of Vietnam. Friends, this is where we live. 
And one third of the people who live in the Bay Area were not born in the United States, which means that they will be very hungry for a community and a relationship and meaning and support and some place that will say, come here, belong here, which means our church gets to be the hands and feet of Jesus in ever deepening ways. But I don't think we'll get there by just being colorblind despite what Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas says. It seems many people still believe colorblindness is the key to solving racism, believing in the notion of colorblindness that sounds like this. When I look at you, I don't even see color. Or this, but we are all the same. Or this, I've never looked at you as you fill in the blank. And these statements are usually followed by a sugary example of how we are all the same. It ends with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. about character, not color, being what really counts. And it all sounds pretty good until you run into someone who refuses to let you forget their race, saying, if you can't see color, you can't see me. If you can't see color, you can't truly know me. If you can't see color, you can't know what I have gone through and what I face every day. Austin Channing Brown wrote, It is possible to notice someone's race, their color, and still recognize all their humanness. It is possible to see someone's color and not be a racist, just as a man can recognize a female and not be a sexist. Or a person can comment on a person's gray hair and not be an ageist. Austin Channing Brown says that we become, that suggests we become color conscious instead of color blind. You see, to be color blind is to ignore or disregard race, whereas being color conscious is to be aware of race, to no longer disregard it as meaningless or minute. People who are color conscious are comfortable noticing difference without ascribing superiority and an inferiority to those differences. They can appreciate cultural differences in the diversity of thought, perspective, and experience that race brings to the world. Color-conscious people refuse to ignore race because they are too busy exploring it for all its beauty, quirkiness, and yes, messiness. And let's be honest, color blindness doesn't really exist no matter how often we try. So rather than desperately trying to disregard what you can clearly see, we need to open our eyes wide and delve into the significance of the race of the person standing in front of you and embrace diversity, which is essential for understanding and dismantling racism. And we need to acknowledge and value different racial and ethnic identities and promote equity by actively acknowledging and addressing historical and ongoing disparities, which means we can't just put our head in the sand and hope that racism will go away, because it won't, or change our history books to ignore and minimize racial injustices that have happened and are continuing to happen, or even try to suggest that there was upside benefits to slavery because it taught people good job skills. Instead... As individuals and as a church, we need to acknowledge racism and speak, preach, march, act, and vote with courageous Christianity to do our part to bring about racial justice, 
so that we can have a more egalitarian society and a fairer society free from bias and racial discrimination. Friends, can you imagine Spark Church as beautiful and diverse and mosaic as the kingdom itself with every tribe and tongue and people and nation? Can you see it? Can you imagine the God whom hath made from one blood people of every nation looking at our church and saying, well done, it has happened again. Antioch has happened again. So friends, may you be an agent for the force of the unifying love of God expressed most fully by our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. And as we come now to our time of communion, know that everyone can participate. It's not our table. It's the Lord's table. Anyone can participate, just like it will be in heaven with every tribe, nation, people, and language. And know that Aristotle, smart as he was, was wrong, because no one is marked out for subjection and others for rule, because we all have a common dignity a common worth, a common value, and you are the object of God's love. Before the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at the table.